Hey guys, Ellie Jacobs from Taking Ship here. After President Trump's speech last night, Frank Spring and I decided to record some of our quick hot takes. We also wanted to thank you for listening to our first episode last week. Uh, thank you for the compliments. Thank you for the criticism. Please keep it all coming. We also want to encourage you to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And of course, follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in premature. Hey, y'all. We're recording our next full episode on Friday morning, so expect it to be up this weekend, probably Saturday night, because if Elton John has taught us anything, it's that Saturday night's all right for podcasting. Saturday night's all right. All right, all right. That's Saturday, a- <laughs> Saturday, 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 Saturday. This is how we're going to get around not having the rights to the music. I'm just going to sing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Frank's going to be doing all, all the singing solo, unless we have guests who can, can join in with a good duet. Um, but because I have a college degree, I no longer have to listen to acapella, so there will be none of that. <laughs> oh, man, that is such – speaking of people getting dragged for acapella, we're already off script. But <laughs> there is a terrific, terrific attack ad. And I say terrific in, the, in an advised sense. There's a terrific attack ad in the, uh, the special election for the Georgia 6th in which uh, Osroff, uh, the Democratic candidate, is getting dragged for his antics during college, which is, A, terrifying – because they're all on video, but B part of it is that he's part of a of an acapella group, and so it features uh, it, it features footage of him singing acapella in college, which to my mind is probably the ugliest thing you can do to someone. But Ellie and I, uh, we we didn't we couldn't let President Trump's speech go uncommented on. It couldn't go uh, unanswered or undiscussed because there is so much that's there's so much in that speech. So much of its content is going to have implications for budgeting and governing and all this other stuff. We're going to talk about that in the full episode. We're going to talk about that, uh, a bunch of this stuff uh, in the coming episodes in the next few weeks. But, but we wanted to give you some, some fresh and what I hope are some, are some searing and hot takes uh, that, you can, uh, that you can keep – that you can take, uh, take away from uh, immediately the day after his speech. So uh, uh, we'll, let's, we'll get right into them. And Ellie, where were you on uh, Trump's uh, speech, his, joint, his uh, speech before the joint, uh, the joint session of Congress? What would have been – what is not technically a state of the union but essentially is now, is now by custom uh, playing that role for a newly elected president? Yeah. Where, where was I? I was about halfway through a bottle in Knob Creek. Um, that's where I was. Uh, my, not without cause. Yeah. My, my first takeaway is really that um, this speech is less the speech and more the reaction. Um, that the media and the punditry has been kind of just over the moon ecstatic by the fact, the simple fact that the president demonstrated he could keep his buffoonery in check for 90 minutes. Uh, and that was really so remarkable and so unexpected that that's what everybody's is so obsessed with today. Uh, to me, it's basically like the media and the punditry is responding the same way that parents do when they're overjoyed the first time their kid uses the toilet. The trouble is, is that the ecstasy gets flushed away pretty quickly, and you're pretty you're back to right where right where you started the next time he shits his pants, which we know inevitably will happen. Terrific device. Uh, you really raise a good point, which is, you know, can he? You know, it, you know, there's no evidence that this guy is capable of of maintaining, you know, any kind of a disciplined uh, or reasonable approach. Um, so I think, I, you know, I think that. What we saw last night, I suspect, is probably not a harbinger of things to come. The difference being he has been so well-received that he may – it is possible 
that the sheer depth of adulation that he has received, which of course is what he really values over everything, may actually cause him to begin trying to say more moderate things. The problem is he's still going to be the same guy with the same the same pathologies. So uh, I would I would predict that this is probably a, a you know a, a short um, a, you know a, a temporary burst of uh, of moderation, if you could even call it that. Yeah, I, I think that we're gonna. He's gonna go right back to shitting his pants um, just as soon as the media stops with the, the uh, overzealous recognition of his ability to control himself and actually starts taking apart the concepts of the speech and sure. analyzes it for what it is. And there is some pretty wretched stuff in there. Yeah, there really is, and we're going to get into uh, we're going to get into a lot of the the content of it, which is pretty troubling. Uh, again, in the in the in our full podcast coming up, uh, I, you know, I have to say, looking at it myself, I was, I, you know, I kind of wish I hadn't watched it actually for all sorts of reasons, uh, but I did. Uh, it was unwise, you know, mistakes were made, uh, and now it can't be unseen. And and so I will say, like during the whole thing, I was you know, sort of talking about the performance of it. I was badly overstimulated watching this thing because I was simultaneously trying to process the content of what Trump was saying, which ranged from the sort of horrifying to the non-existent. I was trying to, to process the content, and I was also trying to kind of take in his performance as a, as a performer, which again is basically just to read off the teleprompter. And it was largely given in the tone of a man who's just woken up from a long coma. I guess sort of, you know, you kind of got the impression that he, you know, maybe sleepwalked into the chamber and then, you know, there was suddenly looked up at the teleprompter and just started reading. Uh, and then occasionally he would get excited, and in those moments of excitement, his you know his demeanor really suggested that he was doing an impersonation of William Shatner. Uh, <laughs> and then and sometimes he had a he, sometimes he had a diction that was that was entirely his own, and and that if he were an actor, uh, you would wonder like why is he making these choices? Like why you know? Then I'll give you a good example of this. There's one thing where he's talking about the improved vetting procedures, and would oh God, that's a, another subject for another day. Uh, but he's talking about the improved vetting procedures, and uh, and saying we will, you know, keep shortly take steps to keep our nation safe and to keep out those who would do us harm. And it was, I, and I was just sitting there thinking, this is a this is what would happen if someone had heard people speaking English but had never tried it themselves. Yeah, it's it's it was an insane choice, and and he did this in several other occasions. The guy hit the word occur harder. Than I think I've ever heard, and then the word occur has ever been hit before. I mean, he trucked that word, and you know, where proper vetting cannot occur. <laughs> why does he? Why does he do this? It, I, it doesn't make any sense to it, me. It's really baffling because he's just a guy from Queens. Yeah, that's that's, just, that's just exactly right. I mean, it is sort of like it is like a guy from Queens doing an impersonation of an actor working his way through the text and he's like, okay, how am I going to really get the meaning out of these things? I've got a limited number of lines. I really want to convey, uh, you know, my motivation in this, you know, in this set of lines, uh, people who would do us harm. No, not that, uh, people who would do us harm eh, closer people who would do us harm. Nailed it. Yeah. Just keeps them on yeah. stage for a little bit longer. I, I think yeah. it was kind of remarkable that, that, uh, he was so willing to uh, a they he they may have drugged him and just that's how they kept him calm. Um, but I found it remarkable that uh, it's really possible just little Benadryl. You know? Yeah, there was a clip of him sitting in the limo uh, before they drove to, drove up the hill, and you could see him reading along, nodding like he was 
trying to get the cadence right. And then while he was speaking or reading from a teleprompter, I don't know if it's really called speaking at some point as opposed to just reading aloud. There's no doubt that there were places in that script where there were like smiley faces or in parentheses, it says, look up, look around room. And that's what he was doing (laughs) almost robotically at those times. And at some point you could see Mike Pence sitting behind him. And I mean, people who have ever used a prompter or been a part of, you know, setting one up it's not very easy for anyone else to see what's on the screen. That's the whole idea of it. But it seemed like Pence could because it looked like he was following along and nodding the same way Trump was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Almost, oh, yeah. Like, almost like he was the puppet master actually doing the work. Oh, there was so much about that. But, I mean, at least I can say at least we have, I think, definitively established that President Trump can read. Which, you know, so some good came of this speech without question. Yeah, yeah. I, on I, the subject, I, that seemed like it may have been up in the air for a while. Sure. On the subject of Pence, uh, I was – the other thing that – and this really distracted and overstimulated me is that the fact that Paul Ryan and Mike Pence were dressed exactly alike, and I mean exactly. It was the same suit, the same shirt, the same pin in the same place on their lapel. It was the same blue tie with the same four-in-hand knot. And they each had that kind of smile that, like, if you were drawing it on a smiley face, it would be the straight line with the two little vertical lines. Like, they had this, they each had the same expression. And so it looked like Paul Ryan was sitting next to an aged version of himself. Uh, yeah. Like, someone had, like, pushed him through an energy field, you know, that had suddenly aged him a couple of decades. And so there was young Paul Ryan and old Paul Ryan. And, and I mean, so, so Paul Ryan, like me, was literally beside himself. It was, <laughs> it was bonkers. It's nice I to only see, wish that nice – I think what they should have done was they should have gotten a congressional intern to sit on the other side of Paul Ryan, also <laughs> dressed the same way, and gotten, like, a child. So you've got, like, these four people all dressed exactly right, the, like the various life cycle of Paul Paul Ryan, yeah, truly fine. It, it's, it's nice to see that when he gets a little bit older, that uh, comical widow's peak actually disappears. Yeah, no, it's true. He has that to look forward to. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, kind of speaking from the well, of the house is a pretty big boy move, and I think that after there is no way that his White House or Trump himself could have seen the inauguration speech in any way differently than anybody else did. Uh, they said the things that they wanted to, but he was still in campaign mode. It's almost like somebody sat him down yesterday and said, okay, um, Donald, you won. Um, It's time to govern. You don't need to do rallies anymore. Um, And the reviews is basically the miraculous that he didn't, that he managed to not screw it up. Um, But I worry sometimes that the pageantry and the disbelief that we're at, that everybody's sort of still experiencing today is going to get away, get in the way of some of the honest analysis. Uh, I mean, obviously, Politico, New York Times, and Washington Post all did their fact-checking, and, I mean, the speech is just riddled with insanity. My favorite one is, at some point, he used the number 94 million um, Americans out of the workforce. That number apparently includes senior citizens, high school students, stay-at-home parents, and people who are too disabled to work. That's how you get to, <laughs> that's how you get to 94 million. Listen... There are billions of Americans who are out of work because they're dead. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. It's true. The, the uselessness of the deceased is, is, is chronic, absolutely chronic. It's a national catastrophe. Yeah. Very sad. And, and their graveyards just take up golf space. That's exactly, that's exactly right. They're here to, moldering away. I'm not doing a day's work, making no contributions whatsoever, just they're taking up valuable real estate. It's a shame. I'll tell you, that's what it is. It's a shame. 
Yeah, but I mean, I, I, to get back into this idea of with the exception of Frederick Douglass, who is dead and doing tremendous work and, and getting recognized for it. Right? Yes, yeah. he's the one exception to this. Yeah, that's yeah, that we know. That's true. <laughs> I mean, it seems like Bannon's still pretty obsessed with Lenin, so we might see yeah. more of that. Um, but yeah. getting back to kind of the pageantry and the disbelief everybody's got, got I, I'd love you know, I, what are your thoughts sort of on the stage and how he managed to fill it or not fill it or kind of just the idea of what the expectation game was and how it played out. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. The, the, the pageantry is getting in the way of ser- of a serious look at this stuff. But I mean, if we take the, if we take the theory that whenever there's a big public event, the action is the reaction, right? So the, you know, someone does something and then the reaction to that thing is as much a part of the story as the thing that was done. I mean, this is, you know, a protest or a, you know, a protest is one thing, how the authorities react to a protest shapes the narrative of that protest to give an example of what I'm talking about. And the reaction to this, the acclaim for Trump's speech, I mean, the people, particularly the inside the Beltway media have been falling over themselves to just to, you know, to, to praise him and talk about how, you know, presidential it was, how, you know, I mean, some fool wrote, you know, is this the Trump that could win in 2020? Uh, you know, the, the acclaim for his speech shows just how credulous we can be, especially the Beltway media. And it's worth keeping in mind, every newly elected president has some built-in bumps, some places where they get, and I mean that in a positive way, like, they have every newly elected president has some built-in advantages. There are things that are scheduled that in, that just occur for almost all of them uh, that increase their uh, that in, that increase their approval and, and give them some very early political capital. The first one is they always get a ratings bump, an approval bump right after they've been elected. Now yeah. that has happened with everyone. Uh, you know, you're the president, and it's you know you're the president now. We like you more because of that. It's a you know it is a naturally occurring phenomenon, and that happened with Trump. Uh, People turn up to the purse to the inauguration, and you know, and that happened with Trump. And well, then in the people, first, plus people in the first up, State of the Union, yeah, and in the first State of the Union or its equivalent, again, these these addresses to the Joint Session of Congress, it's always been well received. Obama's was well received. Uh, George H., George W. Bush's was well received. These things are always well liked because they're pieces of ritual drama. You almost can't fuck them up because everyone knows their lines. But here's the thing about tr- about all of this stuff for Trump. He's gotten all of those things. He got the post-election bump. He got people turned up to his inauguration. He got the the bump from, or uh, he got the bump from his first uh, State of the Union or equivalent. But his are always smaller. He does right. worse than than everyone who has come before, and that's been true on this one as well. They are proportionally his bumps are proportional to his the size of his hands. That's precisely it. You know, you've got to be able to take advantage. You've got to seize these opportunities as they pass by. Yeah. And if you have tiny hands, you can only seize so much of the yeah. opportunity. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to miss out on a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, there, and there are people out there, you know, Alex, Alex Perrine at Deadspin and other places who were really dragging the media for fawning all over Trump. I'll let those people do it. But I want to talk a little bit about a couple of things here very quickly. The first is that the media response to the Karen Owens moment is something that I hope will haunt their memories. Um, this is the moment when uh, when yeah. Trump turned to the the widow yeah, this of is the widow of the Navy of the, Seal who was killed in this raid that Trump apparently ordered while he was eating an overcooked steak with ketchup, and the raid itself did not go well. There was an aircraft that was destroyed. You know, even worse, a Navy Seal was killed. And at this point, there's been, every article written about it has shown that there's been no intelligence. Uh, or anything of use that was learned from this. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and the, the president's come under a fair amount of uh, fair amount of heat for or got taken a fair amount of heat for this. 
Uh, so there's this moment where you know the the widow of the of the fallen seal uh, was in the chamber. Uh, Trump, you know. Uh, Turned to her, uh, thanked her uh, and for her sacrifice and for her husband's service, and then the, there was a, a long round of, of, of standing ovation. Without any context, to my mind, given the timing of this, that would have looked that was pretty grossly exploitative in yeah. any circumstance. I mean, this this raid was two weeks ago, uh, but even so, without any context, that kind of uh, you know that kind of exploitation of the seal sacrifice of uh, of, of rhino and sacrifice is, is pretty grim. Uh, but this is not without context, and this is where I really this is where I really do hope that at some point, if any of these people have any shame, they begin to lose some sleep over this. That was done in the context of Trump blaming the generals uh, for uh, for the you know for the the loss of uh, of Ryan Owen's life. And saying that military that our present military personnel don't fight to win, both of those things had happened in the two days yeah. before he gave the speech. So, having said, our military guy, you know, our military personnel, they don't fight to win anymore. And it's not my fault that this happened. It's the generals; they screwed it up, and that's why uh, that, that's why the seal died. In that context, then standing in front of every, standing in front of both chambers and the American people. And putting on this piece of, of, of celebratory performance art to honor the very legitimate and very honorable sacrifice of an American serviceman was beyond grotesque. It was horrifying. Yeah, and there, uh, there, and, was, there were some articles uh, earlier in the week. I think it was the uh, Miami Herald maybe. There was an article about um, uh, uh, Owens's father uh, refusing to meet Trump. Um, exactly. And demanding yeah. that, there's an act, there, that there actually be an investigation to find out why this raid went wrong, what was learned of anything. Why his son had to die? Why the several innocent civilians also apparently were killed? The aircraft yeah, was destroyed. No, no. There, by all means, there should be an inquiry into something like that. I think anytime, um, particularly in one of these special operation raids, if something does go wrong, there should be an inquiry almost automatically. And I think the the, the terrible irony of this on the subject of the the administration's total unwillingness to do a, an inquiry into what happened. The terrible irony of this is that that not doing an inquiry, refusing to look into lessons learned, refusing to do an inquiry, refusing to to learn from this so that it can be done better next time, and that no, and in in a way that uh, that makes you know future missions more successful at a at a lower cost of life, especially to American servicemen, refusing to look at refusing to learn the right lessons from this or even attempt to learn lessons is about the only thing that an administration could actually do. To trivialize or to, uh, or you know, or to somehow lessen the sacrifice of someone like Ryan Owens, there there is only one possible thing they could do to make his sacrifice less meaningful, and they are doing exactly that thing, yeah. which yeah. is to refuse to learn from it. So that's pretty grotesque. Uh, so friend of the uh, friend of the podcast, Brandon Friedman. I actually don't. Maybe I don't even know if he knows that we have a podcast. But uh, possibly unwitting friend of the podcast, Brandon Friedman. Well, we're going to uh, tag him in Twitter now, and he will know. Yeah. Oh, he's going <laughs> to know. Friedman's on notice. We've got a podcast, Friedman, and we're talking about you. Now, a friend of the podcast, Brandon Friedman, uh, he's a, 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 among other things a, a communications consultant uh, and, and a, uh, a veteran himself. Put up a really good tweet uh, today. It's perhaps the first really good tweet in the history of tweets. Uh, put up a really good tweet today with uh, that put out his timeline with. Uh, of me, put up two timelines. One of how the media, res- uh, the media on his timeline responded to the Karen, uh, the Karen Owens moment, and one uh, of how veterans responded to it. And so, if you've got these two things up there, uh, Friedman's timeline 
is just, you know, one column is just, you know, these media people, you know, uh, Katie Turk, Crystal Liza, others just falling all over themselves to talk about how great, uh, how great, the, uh, how, you know, how wonderful that moment was. And then the next column is a series of veterans all talking about, uh, you know, using words like exploitative, um, you know, wrong, uh, using death for a political gain in the worst way, all this other stuff that's pretty critical. Uh, you know, the, you know, our, this, you know, this from, uh, from, uh, veterans advocate Phil, uh, Phil Carter, our civil military divide has grown so deep and wide that most don't even see how this use of Owen's widow was inappropriate. All right. So you've got the media who are just enthralled by this. And then you've got veterans who were, who were pretty horrified. Um, so that's, I mean, again, this has been mainly comment on the, on the reaction to what Trump did and on some of his own presentation. My last point here is what Trump said had implications for policy, especially around the budget. We'll get into that in future podcasts. Uh, but there, but, but there's one thing that he said last night that I, that I think is the, is the center of all of this. It's the thing that got the strongest reaction from the chamber that wasn't in a round of applause. And that's when he announced, uh, the creation of Voice, uh, the Victims' Office of Immigration Crime Engagement, or, or some such, uh, and it's that you know, where he talked about uh, the idea that there are uh, special interests that are keeping us from hearing. Uh, the real story of people who have been victimized by crime, by immigrant crime. So it's a special, like, this is a special office that is designed to serve people who have been victimized by crime, committed specifically by immigrants. This is part and part, this is a, yeah, this is part of that, of the same narrative. There are bad people who don't look like us and come from different cultures and different countries who are coming to this country and doing bad things. People, the world coming to America is a bad thing and we need to stop it from happening. That's the narrative. That was actually the core of this speech. That was one of the few, one of the few specific policy prescriptions that he made. To lionize this speech for the calmness with which he delivered it and to ignore the fact that what he has just – what he is just – that what he is calling for is straight out of the authoritarian playbook yeah. is, is an abrogation and a dereliction of duty for which I hope these people will someday be called to account. Yeah, because I mean, what was actually in this great and calm speech is actually pretty goddamn terrifying. Yeah, and we're going to talk more about kind of some of those issues uh, tomorrow and I'm sure in podcasts to come. But uh, with the, this voice thing, the fact that he's saying – that there are people that don't look like us come to our country, harm people, and it doesn't get reported is also his way to – he also was his way to bash the media last night because who are the people mm -hmm. that are supposed to be reporting on this? The media. But they're complacent with this idea of that there are bad people coming into the country that don't look like us and doing things because they're all lefty liberal lunatics who don't want to point fingers at anyone who could potentially be doing, doing any harm. And the only people who do harm are rednecks and gun owners. Yeah, this is the the we have the the, the the huge special interest lobby that's covering up crimes committed by immigrants. Like, I mean, you know, who 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 does he imagine that person is? Like, what entity could that possibly be? But that's not really the point here. It doesn't matter. That's not the issue. The issue is, you know, bad things are being done by foreigners, and you know, and you are, and that information is being kept from you. And so, we're going to create a government office as opposed to, say, the entire United States justice system, which exists to serve the victims of crime uh, committed by you know all sorts of people. Uh, we're going to create a special office just to do that. This this smacks to me of a of some L, this has a, a strong whiff of propaganda to it that is I think heading to a very ugly place a hundred percent does uh, you know as soon as you can start pointing fingers at who's to blame for everything that's the direction you go in for uh, other things that aren't going to be so great in the near future um, you know I, it, 
the, the immigration debate is one that is worth having if people are willing to actually focus on what the facts are. And I've seen no evidence that this president is willing to do that. The reality is, is that the people, the people who actually get refugee status and come to this country are so unbelievably deeply vetted. The intelligence communities know what they had for breakfast every morning for the last two years. They, these people are, are so distinctly pushed through so many systems and go through so many systems that the government has set up to ensure that nothing bad, to, to mitigate any possibility of something bad happening. Yet the debate that he is having is not that. He is not talking about ways to strengthen an existing system. He's saying that the system as it works doesn't is a total disaster, and the only way to fix it is essentially to close the doors. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's you know, this as you say, the Syrian refugee population in particular is the most vetted community of migrants in the history of the world. <laughs> like you could not, if you wanted to sneak someone into America to do harm, to do harm, harm, uh, yeah, harm. Uh, that is quite possibly literally the worst way, um, yeah. you know, unless you were to try like some sort of Star Trek, you know, uh, uh, you know, transporter device in which you're trying to re- disassemble all of their atoms and then reassemble them inside the United States, uh, which I will say, if the terrorists get their hands on a piece of technology like that, we are in huge trouble. Yeah. Uh, so I encourage you terrorists to spend all of your time trying to develop a piece of transporter technology. Do nothing else. But just but just go for the moonshot. Create a transporter, a piece of transporter technology, and you'll really have us on the ropes. Please stop everything else you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we've been yammering for about a half hour now, which we promised was going to be a shorter episode, and technically it is. Um, and maybe it'll give us an excuse to cut the the uh, the rest of the episode this week a little bit shorter. Um, but in the meantime, uh, I thought you know it's worth getting in kind of last thoughts, and then uh, we'll close this out. But to me, uh, the important thing is that I, I do genuinely believe that the media, um, media's attention will turn to the content and to what actually he was pushing. And more importantly than that, last night he continued this idea of really not owning any, any of the problems or the solutions. So in other words, he didn't really come up with anything specific. He didn't really have any great proposals for any of the policies that he was actually bringing up or ways to pay for all these things that he wants to do. Uh, he's going to leave that all on Congress's lap. And I really don't see that Congress is going to be totally cool with that when they spend the next year trying to f- replace Obamacare with the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, what's going to happen is he is going, Trump would be much more he- would be much more comfortable as a head of state than as a head of government, just going around giving kind of speeches and being publicly seen uh, you know, he would be, but, but in the United States, our head of government and our head of state are the same person. And as a result, he has no choice but to attempt to govern. And, you know, all of the, you know, not exactly joviality, but, uh, you know, the sort of subdued collegiality that we saw last night is going to crumble straight to goddamn dust as he attempts to, uh, as he attempts to govern based on what he said last night and discovers that not even his own party is on the side. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, uh, Paul Ryan in an interview with Matt Lauer, um, earlier this week said uh, that Trump acts more like a chairman than, than a president, mm-hmm. which is basically what we're saying. Um, yeah, and it's just and it's not really an option. But he's also, as we know from previous stuff that was written this week, he's also a lousy manager, very lousy so manager. He's yeah, he is an historically bad manager. 
uh, and as a res- and I mean that in both senses of the term historically. Uh, and, and, you know, as a result, like this is, I mean, this whole thing, like we may have seen the high watermark of collegiality between Trump and this Congress, at least for a while. Yeah, I think that's fair. All right. With that, uh, we will uh, cut, cut this short. I uh, want to remind everybody to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in premonition, a premonition that things are not going to go well between Trump and Congress in the very near future. Um, Frank, we're not going to take ship today, I don't think, unless you really want to go somewhere. Um, uh, no, I think I think we take I think we uh, I think the, the ship remains docked today, uh, but we you know we we look forward to taking ship uh, when we get the the full podcast uh, the full episode recorded later this week. All right, thanks, guys. <laughs>